right, welcome back, party people. Good to have you. Good to see you. Glad you're here. I'm here in the office. Got my coffee. It's a cold morning again in Knoxville, but here we go. We have been in this little series I'm doing over the break looking at uh, reform theology. This is the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, so we're looking at Reformed theology, and more specifically, talking about the five points of Calvinism, which is summarized in that fun little acronym, TULIP. T. Total depravity. We said that this meant that mankind is affected by sin in his totality, including his will. He is dead in sin in his fallen nature and unable to respond to the gospel with saving faith by himself. That was T. And then you... Unconditional election! And that means that before the foundation of the world, God ordained those that would be saved, and he did so unconditionally. Their election was based off of nothing in them, but was rather based off of the purpose of God's gracious will. And then the last time we looked at the L. Limited atonement. That Christ's work on the cross was effectual or effective. It actually accomplished the work of salvation on behalf of God's elect. And so remember I said at the beginning that the T and the P have to do with us. Mankind And the U talks about God, uh, the Father's role in salvation. And the L talks about God, the Son's role in salvation. And the I, which is what we're going to discuss here and now today, that talks about God, the Spirit's role in salvation. And so really, this should be smooth sailing from here on out. Because by now, if you're, if you're still listening to this, if you're just sticking around... Uh, you're, you're getting the point. If man is unable to do anything about his sin and his salvation, then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are together unified to accomplish the same ends, which is the salvation of God's people. So before we get into a formal definition of what irresistible grace means and look at where we find this idea in scripture, I want to begin by looking at how a, a few famous Christians have described their conversion experience, their, quote, testimony. First, I want to read you a little something from C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist. He was a university professor. And one day he is traveling on the top of a bus. And, and, and here's what he says, or here's what he writes in, in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says this, quote, Without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow pointed out to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. 
I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. Here's C.S. Lewis kind of reflecting on the moment of when he, quote, chose to accept Christ, to believe and trust in Christ. And he says, it felt like it was a free choice, and yet upon further reflection, it, it did not seem possible to do the opposite. In fact, later, he describes God as the hound of heaven, going after his people like a hound on the trail of a fox. And he, and he would write later, quote, I was never so happy as to be caught. We're looking at another uh, somewhat famous Christian's experience. This is Anne Lamott. She's a, a famous author, kind of an edgy, progressive uh, Christian author. And, and she writes a little bit about her story that I'm going to read here. And um, I'm just going to edit it. It's a little, like I said, it's edgy, but I'm going to edit it for the sake of the children listening in. She says this, quote, I did not mean to be a Christian. I've been very clear about that. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus for the first time 12 years ago were, I swear to God I would rather die. I really would have rather died at that point than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-winged, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. I think they would have been less appalled if I had developed a close personal friendship with Strom Thurmond. Or at least there is some reason to believe that Strom Thurmond is a real person, you know, more or less. But I never felt like I had much of a choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, but as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up, mewing outside your door, you'd eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. Of course, as soon as you do, you're screwed, and the next thing you know, he's sleeping on your bed every night and stepping your chest down at dawn to play a little push-push. I resisted as long as I could, like Sam I am in Green Eggs and Ham. I would not, could not in a boat. I would not, could not with a goat. I do not want to follow Jesus. I just want expensive cheeses or something. Anyway, he wore me out. He won I was tired and vulnerable, and he won. I let him in. This is what I said at the moment of my conversion. Forget it. Come in. I quit. So you see two different Christians' experience of what it feels like to encounter Jesus, this hound of heaven, this alley cat of heaven that pursues and is relentless and is aggressive in his love until he wins you. And so the formal definition that I want to give to irresistible grace is this, that the Holy Spirit never fails to bring salvation to those sinners whom God the Father elected and God the Son redeemed. If you were to put it another way, all those whom God has chosen for eternal life will come to faith. So to break this down, that word irresistible, that's getting at this idea of if you, if you give a fallen human heart the ability to resist God, the Calvinist is at least going to say he will resist God every time. So the idea here is that God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates, which is a fancy word for, you know, to be born again, that the Spirit transforms, recreates, in other words, regenerates 
someone's soul. I mean, the human soul is utterly passive until it has been made alive. Remember, we talked about earlier that the that the human heart is is dead. We are dead in our transgressions. But God gives you a new heart. He, he regenerates your will. He gives you a renewed will. And so when the human heart has been renewed, it is now free to believe. And now it actually wants to believe. The Holy Spirit enables you to receive spiritual truth. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says. Remember Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus is dead in the tomb. And Lazarus responds to Christ's call. Remember, Jesus stands at the, the, the mouth of the tomb and he says, you know, Lazarus, come out. He, and Lazarus responds, but only after he had been made alive. And that's the image. The image is that regeneration comes before faith. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. Paul compares the regeneration of a sinner's heart to the creation of the world out of nothing. Here's a, uh, a couple of interesting quotes before we get into the Bible. R.C. Sproul, who's a kind of famous Reformed theologian type author guy, he said this, quote, Irresistible grace means that the sinner's resistance to the grace of regeneration cannot thwart the Spirit's purpose. The grace of regeneration is irresistible in the sense that it is invincible. And he says at another point, quote, unless God changes the disposition of my sinful heart, I will never choose to cooperate with grace or to embrace Christ in faith. Saving grace does not offer liberation. It liberates. Saving grace does not merely offer regeneration. It regenerates. This is what makes grace so gracious. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it's important to say this on the front end. God does not drag people into heaven kicking and screaming. Remember, God transforms our will. God the Spirit regenerates our will, regenerates our hearts, regenerates our, our very nature so that now for the first time, we actually desire God and we desire God's will. Here's another quote of how Michael Horton put it, another theologian, author, type. He put it this way, quote, God the Spirit overwhelms us with his love and grace, liberating us to freely embrace what we had just before freely rejected. That's the idea. You're not dragged into heaven kicking and screaming against your will. You freely embrace it. You freely choose it. You know, we sing this hymn often in RUF called Amazing Love. And there's this image in there that kind of captures this perfectly where it says, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? That's the image. We were locked up. We were in prison to the, to the nature of our own sinful will. And God comes in and busts the chains off. Our chains fell off. Our heart was free. And out of the freedom of a regenerated will and nature, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So, 
That's irresistible grace kind of defined. Let's defend it. Let's see if scripture even speaks about these realities. So let's defend irresistible grace in three little subheadings. Let's look at the Spirit's work in general, number one. Then number two, let's look at the Spirit's work in particular. And then number three, we'll look at the Spirit's work in effect. What's the result? What's the the impact? What's the effect? So let's begin with number one, the Spirit's work in general. And I want, to, I want to look at a couple, uh, a few verses that show, again, that the Trinity is on the same page when it comes to salvation. That salvation is just as much of a work of the Spirit as it is the Father and the Son. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in them? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught in human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is saying we receive these things from the Spirit, but the natural, the the, uh, unregenerated man or woman, the, the, the natural unregenerated person doesn't understand spiritual reality because the Spirit hasn't worked on them yet. When the Spirit works on someone, regenerates them, opens up their eyes, busts off the chains, then they are finally able to interact with, understand, and embrace the gospel and spiritual reality. Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This says that God saved us through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. All I want you to see here is that simply the Spirit's work is included in the kind of bigger overarching reality of our salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I just want you to see that all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are included in that opening passage. The Father is the one that elects 
that the spirit is the one that sanctifies. The son is the one that provides his blood. So we can look at more verses, but I just wanted to give you a quick sketch of the spirit's work in general. He, as a member of the Trinity, is on the same page with the other members of the Trinity when it comes to our salvation. Number two, the Spirit's work in particular. And what I want you to see here in particular, the, the Spirit does a lot of things that we could spend a whole lot of time about, but I just want to zero in, zoom in on one aspect of his work in particular, in that he is the one that changes our hearts. Let's look at a couple different passages. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. I want you to notice the order of that verse. It says that God is going to circumcise your heart. He's going to do something to your heart so that you will love him. He changes the hearts. He's the initiator. He does something to your heart, and the the result is that you love him. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Again, God is the one who does this. He's the subject of those verses. He's the one that changes our hearts. But those two texts, Deuteronomy and Ezekiel, they don't they're not hyper-specific. They just say that, quote, God is the one that does it. It doesn't specify, the Bible does not specify that it's actually the Spirit that's the one that's doing that until you get to the New Testament. So again, let's just look at that Titus passage again. Titus 3, verse 5, and you're going to see, okay, this is the, it's the Spirit is the one that's regenerating. It's the Spirit. He is the one that gives us a new heart. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So that's the Spirit's work in particular. He is the one that changes our hearts. But let's look at the last thing. Number three, the Spirit's work in effect. result? What's what's the effect of our hearts being changed and renewed and regenerated by the Spirit? Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
Now, that's an interesting way to put it. It, it says that, that it has been granted to you to not only believe, but to suffer. But it says that it's been granted to you to believe, that your belief itself, your faith, is a gift. It's been granted to you. In fact, we sing this uh, song again in RUF, Come Ye Sinners, where it says, All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. He gives you the very thing that he requires of you, which is faith. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You notice the order there? The Lord opened her heart first, and then she responded. That's the order. He works, and then I work. I respond, I move in faith, I embrace the gospel only because he has first worked in me. Earlier when we were looking at total depravity, total depravity, I asked you to kind of imagine uh, if, what would happen if you put a hungry lion... Uh, what would happen if you had a hungry lion and you put in front of it two different plates? On one, you had a plate of um, meat, a thick T-bone steak. And on the other plate, you put a bowl of Fruit Loops in front of it. Ten times out of ten, the lion is going to freely choose the, the, the steak over the Fruit Loops because that is inherent to its nature. Its, its nature is um, binding it in such a way to only choose what it wants to choose. But what if, um, miraculously, the Holy Spirit were to go into that lion, as it were, and completely re-sculpt and transform the very nature of the lion? Let's say, and this is, this is where the, this analogy is getting really bizarre, though. Let's say that it were to uh, the, the spirit were to transform the lion's nature into the nature of a six-year-old child. Now this lion freely will choose the bowl of Fruit Loops. Okay, that analogy is pretty ridiculous. But but here's the thing: if you if you are a fallen, dead, sinful unregenerated human being given the choice between God over here and life and freedom and forgiveness. And then over here on this other plate, you have death and sin and self-destruction. The fallen sinful person is always going to choose that other option, death and sin and destruction, 10 times out of 10. He will freely out of the freedom of his will, choose that option. But when the Holy Spirit comes by pure grace, irresistible grace, the Spirit comes and regenerates and renews and transforms that sinner into from, transferring him from death to life. Now for the first time, that person can freely choose what it had just previously freely rejected. 
It can embrace and respond to the gospel in faith. So let's just look at a few more verses in summary to kind of summarize. That's what the word summary means. To summarize this this idea, let's look at John chapter 6, verse 37. Again, we've looked at this verse numerous points in this little podcast deal, but here we are, John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The elect, all that the Father gives to Jesus, will come to me. They cannot resist the irresistible grace of the Spirit. Here's John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is kind of the inverse of that same idea. You can't come to the Father unless he draws you first. And he draws you by his Holy Spirit. Let's look at one more. John 6, 65. Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 10 times out of 10, fallen human beings will choose sin and death and misery unless the Father draws them, unless he sends the Spirit to regenerate their will. Let's look at one more uh, passage out of John. This is John chapter 10, verse 25 through 30. Let me flip there. Here we go. John 10, 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So again, what's the reason given by Jesus for why his audience doesn't believe in him? It's because they are not a part of his flock. His sheep, those that are his, the elect in other words, they're the ones that hear the voice of Jesus through the gospel because the Spirit enables them and they respond. That's why they believe it's because they are a part of his flock. One last verse. We've looked at this verse before, but it's important. Acts thirteen forty-eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who were those that believed? Those that were appointed to eternal life. Notice the order, and it doesn't say the, the, the reverse, that those who believed were appointed to eternal life. Rather, those who were appointed to eternal life believed. So that's irresistible grace in a nutshell. The Father is the one that authors our salvation. The Son is the one that goes out and accomplishes our salvation. And then the Spirit is the one that, that goes out and applies that salvation into the very hearts and lives of God's people, his flock. So by this point in our little 
podcast journey, I feel like we've we've we, we're, we're like I said at the beginning, we're on a little bit of a downhill slope. We've we've gone through all the rough stuff of limited atonement, unconditional election, blah blah blah. So all, everything else from here on out is just going to fall like dominoes in place. So I'm not going to do a irresistible grace on trial this week. We're just going to assume that we're good to go until we can circle back next time with our with our with the last of the tulip, the P which stands for Perseverance of the Saints. We'll look at that, and then we'll do a uh, kind of big recap of the whole deal, and then we're done. But man, how fun has it been to go on this theological nerd journey together. Until next time, I'm out.